very bright guitar that David has there. Very nice turquoise. Hey, does the start actually has nothing to do with the message, but I just saw this statistic just recently. Uh, did you know that, that families that bring their children to church, that those kids, and when I say come to church, they're actively involved in a local church on a regular basis, that those kids, when they grow up, they tend to uh, certainly get married more often, have stronger marriages, uh, have significantly less divorce in those marriages, and, and report significantly higher rates of satisfaction in those marriages. And so uh, that means that if you're here today, and especially if you're bringing your kids, uh, you're doing the right thing. And it's not just my opinion. Uh, that is what the data says. And so congratulations. I'm so thankful that you are here. Hey, you can clap for that. That's a big thing to clap for. And um, I think the reason I, I feel that way to, to say things like that sometimes is uh, church isn't just something we do to check off a box. Now, if you're doing that, I'm still certainly glad that you're here, and I'm going to hope to move you into another way of, another way of thinking at some point. Uh, but for those of you like myself that are just, we are part of a local church. I believe in the mission and method of the local church because it is the tool that God has always given Christian believers since the first day that he ascended and sent us out into the world to go off and make disciples that, um, of course, the church has purpose and great results in those that lock into it because that's the way that God made it. And it's kind of a little bit along the lines that we'll be talking about in this series titled On Heaven, uh, every, every week, On Earth as it is in Heaven. And so in this series, we have been discussing this idea that I have just kind of titled God's Moral Law, that God has put into the fabric of His world and His created order these moral laws that we did not invent um, but we certainly have discovered them through the teachings of Jesus and throughout Scripture. And it takes really just a quick look at history. And, and I'm not the only one saying this. Several, uh, several recent works just even in, this, in the um, educational space. A guy named Tom Holland wrote a book called Dominion. How basically all of us, uh, if we were fish... We're all swimming in Christian water. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody that swims in the water is Christian, but our thought patterns, uh, even those who are atheists today, think like Christian atheists, if you can think of those things, that the things that we hold valuable, um, you know, care for the poor and those who are going through hard times, mourning with those who mourn, that might does not make right, mercy and forgiveness, human rights, all of those things like that have been birthed out of a Christian worldview and, con and, and conscience because that's what God has baked into his universe. And there, those laws are just as sure as the law of gravity or thermodynamics or wh whatever other physical, you know, thing that you would want to point out there. Again, things we did not invent. We didn't invent math. We discovered math, right? And so God has put all those things into it. And so each week we're looking at a different aspect of those things that our culture agrees that, yes, these are good things. These are necessary things. What we're asking is, well, why? Why does our culture do that? Why, why do we all feel the same way about that? And today's topic is one that I have actually never preached on. So yippee, um, guinea pigs, I guess. But uh, what we're talking about today is this phrase that I want to title, work as a calling. Work as a calling. Now, uh, research shows, and this is actually really good data behind this, that in order to thrive, we need meaningful work. And what that really means is there is a version of work that equals just survival. Now, that might be where you are. 
You might not feel like you are thriving. You may feel like you are only working to survive. You're only barely getting by. But the reality is, and the data points, that there is a type of work that gets past survival and that leads us to thriving, that, that we need meaningful work to thrive. And, and that what the data also shows is that those who only work for money tend to be the most unsatisfied. Which is interesting because I think if I were to sit down and talk to most of you and I ask you, why are you doing what you're doing as far as your job is concerned? And you'll probably be two answers. Either one, it was the only thing available at the time and that's what I did or I started or I started a long time ago and I was too afraid to move. Or two, was because I thought it was going to make me the most money. That's right. And look, as a practical, I'm not saying like that's a bad thing, obviously, because it takes money to survive. But what has happened is, is this not positive correlation of, well, I just need a job that can make me the most money because actually it's money that will help me thrive. And let me tell you, that is actually an incredibly American idea. And one of the most fascinating things we're going to hear, hopefully some of these these stories in the coming weeks, is that when you go to, uh, let's say, a foreign mission field environment, I heard it again recently, you know, we had a group that went to Guatemala just a week or so ago, and I was talking to a few of them, and they all said the same thing, says, you know what is fascinating and really startling is that you go there and you realize that they all, most people in that country, especially out in the villages, have so little, but they seem far more content and joyful about their daily lives than we can ever consider being. Well, that's fascinating, isn't it? That you and I have more access to stuff, and yet we're still pretty stinking miserable. Don't believe me. Have you been on Twitter lately? I mean, have you just been, have you read anything on social media? Go into a comment section on, on, on anything. Oh, and guess what? It's an election year, so don't worry. We're all going to be on our best behavior, right? We're all going to be super friendly with the people we don't agree with, right? Well, how interesting is it that when you go to a place that they have very little and they seem to have to trust Jesus for basically everything and we don't hardly have to trust him for nothing, they're significantly more happy. They're, they are thriving far better. So, so obviously there's a, there's a misstep, right? So if we see... But work that is seen as calling, it, and it matches our values, and we can kind of pair those things together. Actually, what the data shows is that it connects us with people, that it helps us feel like we're fitting into a larger vision, and that we can experience more joy. And while we know some of these things to be true, I don't think I'm going to knock down any brand new barriers in your mind. What we also have to reconcile is that there's a huge gap in how we view different kinds of work. And what I mean by that is every single one of us, if you were going to a dinner party and the first person you met and you ask them, hey, what do you do? And they say, I clean bedpans at a nursing home. You go like, wow, man, you must have a big heart or made some really bad decisions maybe. I'm serious. I'm just being practical. Like, wow, I don't, I, want, I don't want to do that. I'm glad somebody's doing it, I guess, but I don't want to do that. And then the next person you meet is a really wealthy CEO. Guess whose number you're going to want to get? Whose number do you think you want to get? The one who in our minds is the most successful. The one who has the most going for. <gasps> Maybe even the one that can help me the most. I want, to, I want to rub. Nobody wants to rub elbows with the person that's been cleaning the bedpans. You don't even know if they washed their hands. 
And I know I like, and look, if you're one of those people, we're, we're going to get to you in a minute. I am not downplaying at all. But the fact is, is that we see status, wealth as a measure of success. And that's the line we all want to get to. Well, here's the interesting thing about the Christian faith, though, is that if you were to talk to Jesus or any of his early followers about that, what they would say is, well, good for that man. But all I know is that the last time Jesus talked to somebody who was wealthy, he asked them to give it all up for his sake. And that man walked away. And so actually the paradigm in Christian faith would be not that there's anything wrong with being successful. Again, not the point of the story, but the person who is the CEO of the Fortune 500 company who has millions of dollars in his bank, if he doesn't know Jesus, it is far better to be the person cleaning the bedpan who does. Like that's, that's the paradigm, right? And so there's a kind of just something we need to lay on ground level that there's obviously something wrong there. So I think to get us really started on this topic of work and what the Bible teaches about work, and how we're going to approach this. I want to start uh, with you doing a little mind experiment. I'm going to say a word, and I want you to think of something really fast. I want you to make a mental image. What do you think about when you hear the word heaven? Now, if you're like, any, if you're like most of the internet, because I typed this into the internet, and I said pictures of heaven, this is what popped up. Going towards the light, Right? fluffy clouds, right? Little stairway action maybe. Maybe St. Peter's right on the other side of the gates, right? And then, and then I thought, well, obviously if it's heaven, there's got to be angels in heaven. So I typed in pictures of angels and this is the pictures. No kidding. This is the, some of the pictures I got. I didn't realize they were cartoon babies. I know that's what an angel was. I don't know why Mary was so afraid when an angel showed up at her doorstep saying that she was going to have the Messiah, right? And I think if most of you are, are, are like me, because I have actually thought this, and so maybe you have and you don't want to admit it, but probably if this is your picture of heaven, you have actually wondered, oh my gosh, is heaven going to be boring? What if heaven is boring? There's supposed to be a boring there. You're killing the dramatic effect. There it is. <laughs> we're going to work better on our timing on that. But what if heaven is boring? So you're telling me that at the end of all this, like, yeah, I get that no longer working to toil and hardships and life and heartbreak, but I don't really know if I want to sit on a fluffy cat. And look, this is, a, this is a real thing because I have heard people say on the television, well, I don't know if I want to go to heaven. I think the party's in hell. I've heard it said. I heard a famous talk show host says, oh, we're going, all going to hell anyway. That's all right. I'll meet you at the party. That's how our culture thinks about this. Obviously, we as Christians have done a very poor job of trying to illustrate what heaven is, to be honest with you. And the first thing it starts with, heaven's not the end goal, just so you know, proper Christian theology is not that we're going to go to heaven. Uh, I mean, we do go to heaven, but heaven's a temporary place, right? Where do we go? We go to the new heavens and the new earth that we will be like Jesus resurrected in body form again. You will be a physical body one day again if you trust in Jesus, not a disembodied spirit woo, floating all around. That's not what the end goal is for the Christian believer. But we can also say that at the end of it all, at the end of time, when God makes things new, the pastor Randy Alcorn says in his book, Heaven, I love this quote, he says, we'll also have work to do. Yay. Only one, one clapper's like, yeah, that's the one that wakes up at five in the morning. It's like, let's do it. Everybody else is like, it's five again. I just went to bed. Not today. Why is it always Monday? Why is it always Monday? It's never always Friday. All right, we'll have work to do. Satisfying and enriching work that we can't wait to get back to work that will never be drudgery. 
But why will there be work in heaven? Where can we actually make this statement and this argument from a Christian perspective? Well, we're not going to go forward. We're going to go back. Because if we remember the beginning of our Bible, there was a span of time in which God and humanity were in perfect relationship as things were supposed to be. That was with Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve were where? They were in the the garden, the garden of Eden. So let's read Genesis 2.15. It said, oh, number, number one, number one, we can know. I'm missing my first point, actually. Number one is we are made to work. We are made to work. Genesis 2.15. The Lord took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to what? To work it. Whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa. I thought this was paradise. I thought he was some down, somewhere down in the Caribbean. And there was a rum bar there. I don't know. I don't know what, you know. I thought it was nicer than that. I thought it was something fun. I thought like a cruise ship dropped him off. No. God, this is what God is actually always, what the Bible is always promoting is that God wants to work in partnership with his creation. That God created us not to sit back and frolic in green fields. That's not what Adam was doing. That God has created us to be a part of continuing his work in his creation. So God made the world. He placed man in it. And he says, man, I have a job for you to do. Adam was not unemployed. His employer just happened to be God. He also got fired. We'll get to that story in a minute. But, but he had a job. Adam and Eve had a job. God gave them commands. Again, I use this illustration all the time just for a silly effect, but God could have named the animals, but who did he give that responsibility to? His created leader in his new world. But of course, sin has come into the world and it has wrecked things. And so what we always need to understand is that what sin has done, because sin is far more than just me, me be bad, me not listen, you know, right. What sin is, is sin is a breaking down of God's created order. It's rebellion. And so if God is order, anything rebelling against that is what? It's, it's disorder. It's chaos. It's brokenness. It's evil. It's horrible. We don't want to be part of that. But when we choose to live in our sin, or when mankind initially sinned, it broke everything. It broke everything. It, it, the sin of man broke the world. And so what happened is, is that when Adam rebelled against God, God came and he, you can look at it kind of parallel ways. God did give out the consequences. He, he doled out the consequences. God is father. He's a father. He, he punishes. He, he gives consequences. I hope that doesn't offend you, but that is how God operates. He can. He's God. But also, it's natural consequence too. It's just what happens when you do the wrong thing. You touch a hot stove, well, what? You get burned. Doesn't mean that God's punishing you, but he created heat in your skin. It's a natural consequence. The natural consequence here in Genesis 3, verse 7 is this. He said to the man, because you've listened to your wife and ate from the tree, which I commanded you, do not eat from it. Don't do it. The ground is what? Cursed. The very ground is cursed because of you. You will still eat from it. As you were, but by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by what? By the sweat of your... It's a concert. I don't know what's happening. (laughs) Obviously, there's a miscue somewhere. They'll they'll get that right. It'll probably swap again in a second. (laughs) 
You will eat the bread of the sweat of your brow until you return to where? The ground, since you were taken from it, from, from, for you are dust and you will return. So what does this mean? There was once a work that we were created for that brought life, that brought purpose. There we go, they fixed it. But now what work feels like for, so most, for most of us is that it's crushing us in dust. So what else is like this, though? This isn't the only thing, so it's helpful to have some context around this. What other things has sin broken? Well, a good example is relationships. God created relationships, both with him and others. And so relationships can be a source of tremendous joy. But I would suppose that some of your greatest hurt has also come through broken relationships where sin entered in. Or maybe something like love, a beautiful, powerful thing that God made. He is love, but tarnished by sin can be disruptive. How about childbirth? Did you know that there was childbirth before the fall, that God created them to go and multiply before the fall, but part of the woman's consequence was what? Is that now it will be painful, dangerous. How about something like sex? Again, if there was childbirth before the fall, there was obviously sex before the fall. So now this beautiful thing that God has given the world is destroying cultures from the inside out as it does people from the inside out. Why? Because sin. There's so many things, happiness, peace, and certainly work. We can say that even though we were created for work, outside of God's design or outside of God's will for us, work does not help us. It breaks us. So what has work become? Something that crushes us, it grinds us into dust, and it takes us our energy. Something that we feel like we have to do and something, instead of something that we get to do. And part of that is, is what we have done with work. So, so step one, we were created for work. God created us to be movers and doers and builders and thinkers and creators. But we have done something bad. We have done something very negative with our work is this. Our work is not our identity. See, we have attached our work to our identity. And an easy example of this is what? When we ask kids, what do you, and it's just one little letter. It's one little letter. What do you want to be? Ah, you got it. What do you want to be when you grow up? And that's actually the statement of our age. Because somehow or another, we are teaching even our children that what they do represents who they are. And so really, I don't think it's bad to ask kids, what do you want to maybe do? But see, I want to be a good husband. I want to be a good father. I want to be a good Christian leader. I want to be a good friend. Did you know I can work anywhere, literally anywhere, and still be those things? Or I can be untrustworthy, I can be selfish, I can be a jerk, I can be a cheater, I can be a liar, and I can still be a millionaire while being those things, right? And so obviously there's an issue with being and doing, and so I do think it's better for us to say to our kids, what do you want to do when you grow up? Because we can be somebody terrible while seemingly successful from the eyes of the world, right, by what we are doing. So we have attached our doing to our identity, and it's wrong. That is not how the Bible presents it whatsoever. So our culture has done this in two ways. Number one, you are defined by what you do. We do it all the times, especially with men and, 
It's just a way to make easy conversation. You either talk about this or the weather. Yeah, hey, hey, what do you do? What do you do? You're talking about work. Because there is certainly something to be said about what somebody does. And it goes back to our illustration earlier about the janitor or the bedpan person versus the CEO. We want to know what level of respect do I need to lay upon you? How do I need to treat you? Are you better than me or not? Because we've attached our doing to who we are. And number two is we are defined then by how successful we are in doing it. And this exists in, in every, every pocket of our society. It exists in churches. Like I, listen, how this works out in my life is, while I feel like I have been called to, to, to pastor, it's not a new thing for me. I mean, part of my story is that I feel like God confirmed that in my life when I was like 10 it's just my story. But what I am is not a pastor because I can stop being a pastor. I may stop being a pastor one day. I may retire from being a pastor or God sends something my way that doesn't allow me to be a pastor, but that does not change who I am. My identity is not attached to what I do or how successful because look, I'm young, I'm driven, I want to be a part of a growing, thriving, healthy church that's always on the name of the lips of people around in the community. That's my level of success in my world. That's how I know that I'm doing a good job. And guess what? I can still forfeit my soul even though I think it's a good thing because our success is not tied to our identity either. So you all follow me. I'm just trying to use myself as an example there. But whatever that looks like in your life, no, no. See, achievement... And identity are two very different look, different things. See, Jesus says it this way in Matthew 6. Remember this in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been kind of looking at different aspects of that. Matthew 6, 24. Jesus says, see, no one can serve two masters. Since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And you may say, wait a second. Jesus talks about money. And you're right. Which is why I've been trying to connect the dot in our brain that to us, success is money. That's how we view it. Money is the success. Money is the freedom. Money is the ultimate goal. Because if I can make it up to that level that I can do whatever I want, then I can look at myself in the mirror and finally maybe be able to say, you are enough, but I will tell you that's not how it works. Doesn't matter how successful you become, if you're empty on the inside, something from the outside cannot fill it. So, as a Christian, how do we think about this? Well, the Christian way is this our identity is not in our work, but rather is revealed through our work. That regardless of what we put our hands in, we don't find our identity in it, our identity is worked out through it. What do you mean? So we do things differently. We act differently. We think differently. We respond differently. We have different values and expectations for ourselves and what we do as work. See, if our identity is in Christ Jesus, which is what the Bible says, that means in Jesus, regardless of what you do, how successful you are or are you are not, how much money you do or don't have, in Jesus, you are still loved. You are still adopted into the family of God. You are still made new. You were purchased from death to life through a great 
Christ, the, the life of Jesus Christ. You are chosen, called, anointed, blessed, and highly favored. And you do not have to live in a mansion to be any of those things. Because your success isn't tied to your identity, who you know is. It's always been that way. And the trouble that you and I are going to have to navigate is not getting lost in the noise. Because look, I, I, I'll just, I, I always want to be really honest to try to make sure this connects. So I live in the pastor's world, so I have to use pastor stories. But look, there was a real season of time a few years ago when I had to stop unfollowing other pastors on social media, not because they were doing anything wrong, because it began to do something in my heart that wasn't good. And I would walk around, even though I was smiling, angry and disappointed that I couldn't have what they had. And I would begin to tell myself things like, I'm just as talented, I'm just as driven, I've sacrificed just as much, maybe more. I've done all the right things. I've said all the right things. I've tried to be all the right places. I've tried to rub all the right shoulders. And why doesn't my ministry look like theirs? You might think, wow, that is kind of some dark stuff. Well, because we all have to fight to place our identity back in Jesus. If, listen, if I never step in front of you again, ever, I am still as complete in Jesus as I am right now. Because this isn't where the identity lies. It's never in what we do. Jesus is always worried about who we're becoming. Listen, sometimes he might remove you from a place to protect you from becoming something he knows you're headed for and actually you and your heart want. And he says, "Mm -mm, my child, I love you too much. I'm going to pull you back. So sometimes it's not a punishment. It's a protection, right? Maybe the reason you didn't get that raise is because you couldn't handle it because your identity would have been too wrapped up in there. That race could have been the end of your family. Could have been the end of your life. I don't know. I don't know what your story is, but man, that's a heavy teaching, but that is, that is some true stuff. So how do we work this out from Scripture, Ephesians 2.10? For we are his, there's the identity, there's the ownership, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Sitting on the couch playing video games, right? No. And now look, I'm not down in that. I'm just telling you, made for good works, which God has prepared ahead of time for us to do. See, our identity cannot be based on something that can easily be taken away. If it's your job, if it's your status, if it's your money, it all can be taken away. I mean, how do I know that? Well, Great Depression, what did you hear about? Dude, people were jumping out of skyscrapers to commit suicide because they thought there was no hope. Why? Because they attached their identity to their money and to success. And when it was gone, they had so, I will say, I do want to finish this part with this. Man, I'm going to sound like my dad for just a second. Man. And I am not, listen, I'm not like trying to be edgy or anything like that. Um, I've told this story before, I'm sure, and I'll say it again. When I was 13, on my 13th birthday, and I told him I'd never forget this, and I never have. But now it's in a sense of thankfulness. Um, he used to have a little side cutting, cutting grass business on the side, and on my 13th birthday, instead of celebrating my birthday, he took me out to go cut grass, Right? You know, what's so funny, though, is that what he was training me to understand, and some of it was practical. I don't think that was just a teaching lesson. We just had to cut grass. It was a Saturday. It just happened to be my birthday. Welcome to real life, folks. Welcome to adulthood, right? But look, young guys, you were meant to work. God has created you to work. 
Now, that does not always mean, though, that just because he created you to work, that you will always enjoy the work. I didn't enjoy that cutting grass at 13. But you know, it's funny. Even though I didn't enjoy that, I continued to cut grass up until my mid-30s, early 30s. And you know what happened? I grew to love it because it became such a space of worship and prayer for me. Matter of fact, I feel like those seasons, apparently James cut some grass before, but <laughs> bring some down now. But those moments are actually some of the moments I feel like I grew the most spiritually because I had no other distractions in my life. So God has created you to work. And that may mean you need to get up, go start putting some applications in because it does your heart good to work. Sitting home doing nothing will destroy you. It does not make you better. It does not make you better, uh, a better contributor to society. That is not how you're going to lead your family one day. And I know I can say the same to the ladies, and that's fine. But listen, that's not where the plight is today. Young men, God has created you to work. And you will find part of your purpose in the Lord through your work, that is where you will thrive. You will not thrive if you're not working. You will not thrive if you're not working. So, all right, dad, talk over. Done with that. All right, number three. This is the final one, and we're, we're going to wrap up with this. So we have God creators to work. Our identity is not in our work. And number three, work done in service to Jesus is holy work. It's holy work. All right. See, one of the most incredible things that Christianity has done is bring tremendous value to those who culture saw as meaningless. Now, in studying for this, one of the things I ran across several times is different scholars and authors and even just from reading the Bible, understanding the cultural context of the time that when, when Paul and the New Testament was being written and all that stuff there was a very small, wealthy, elite class of people that maybe didn't have to do a whole lot. But the vast, vast majority of human beings that were alive at the time were either laborers or slaves. And so if you were in the laboring class, what that probably meant is that, like even the stories of Jesus, we all know it. What was Jesus' dad's occupation? He's a carpenter. Why do we know that? Like, why, why do we know that? Like, I don't know what any of your dads did. And I know several of you. I don't know what your dads did. Why? Well, because what your father was indicated your place and structure in society. And if your dad was a carpenter, more than likely his dad was a carpenter, probably meant what? You would be a carpenter or a fisherman. Or, you know, seems saying so you would stay within the family trade. So that was typically the laboring class. And then you have the slave class. And there was a good portion. They, most studies say that uh, at the height of the Roman Empire, probably somewhere between 40 to 50 percent of the entire population uh, were slaves. And slaves would often come in in two ways. Either A, from conquered people brought in, of which the Romans had conquered a lot. Or two, if you were massively in debt, you could basically sell yourself into slavery to work yourself out of slavery. Now, there can be a designation, just while we're talking about it, between that type of slavery, which at times maybe not have been as quite as bad, but still slavery, slavery, versus the slavery that our country experienced in the past, which was absolutely, utterly evil. And of course, it was Christians that finally came to the realization that, look, slavery is not of God, so why don't we have slavery in the West? Well, because of the Christians, we talked about that. But for our time being, while we're talking about this now, what that meant is when Paul and Jesus and all these teachings were floating around for the first time, it was not in a society like ours where we're asking our children, what do you want to do when you grow up? 
Their answer would have been, what are you talking about? Obviously a carpenter. Obviously a fisherman. Or, well, obviously a slave because that's what my father is. That would have been a dumb question. So number one, we are already a little removed because of our wealth and excess that we even think you have the ability to choose. And we do. You can choose. Any one of you could change your jobs tomorrow if willing to take the sacrifices needed to go along with it. But not in this culture. And so what Christianity started to do very early on is begin to level the playing field because guess what started to happen in the Christian church? There is no longer male nor female, Jew nor Greek, rich nor... What? So you're saying, in the eyes of God, whether you own a villa or you push a broom on the villa, we're the same? Look, I keep saying this. That's the birthplace, just so you know, of what we call equal human rights. This idea that all men and women are created equal, this is where it started, so you know. The, the words aren't exactly there, but the thoughts are being worked out over several generations to where finally one day somebody wakes up and goes, oh my gosh, this is God's plan all along. This has always been the way it is. It's us that impose these broken systems. But what that means is, look, when I read what I'm going to read to you next, this was not written to people like you and me. While it does still apply, it was not written to people like you and me who get to choose basically what we do every day. This was written to a church full of slaves and indentured servants poor working class, along with some wealthy elite people as well. This is what it says. Paul writes in Colossians 3, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. And this next line was a paradigm shift. You serve the Lord Christ. What are you, what are you saying? No, no, no. I have a master. Or no, no, no. I'm a poor farmer or worker. What do you mean? No, no, no. You may, they may think they own you or they may think that you work for them or that you're employed by them, but no. You know because of who you are now. Because where your identity really is, no, you serve Jesus Christ, the Lord. Now, where do we get, how does Paul, because man, we miss it. Ooh, we miss it. This was outrageous. I mean, the truth is, this is why sometimes the wealthy, even in that time, did have a hard time accepting the teachings of Jesus. Because if you're on the top of the totem pole, you don't want to have to be cast to the bottom. Because what Christianity does is it kind of flips it topsy-turvy, you know? But where's the, where do we get this idea? Because this is crazy. Is Paul just making this up? No. Because on the night before he was betrayed, Jesus, fully flesh, fully man, Yet, listen to me, don't make the mistake, he was still fully God. Meaning that at the moment 
of him bending down the bowl of water and a rag to wash the feet of his disciples. He was simultaneously holding the universe together. That in that moment, infinity chose to become less than, like that of a servant. And I think we look at that and, I mean, I can struggle with that still sometimes. I, I get it where Peter was like, Lord, you will not do this. But I think it was to show us that if you're a Christian, there's nothing beneath you. Like I, made, I think that made us what we all kind of need to hear today because what we have in our culture is we all think that there's something beneath us that's kind of part of what's baked into our DNA as a society. That as long as there's somebody beneath me, I'm doing okay. As long as there's somebody who's having a worse time than me. And so what the Christian message comes in and does, it says, oh, just by the way, there's nothing beneath you. How can you say that? Well, I don't know, because when God became flesh, the last thing he did was he washed the feet of his disciples. Oh, right before he walked to the cross, which was the worst, most defiling, horrific death for the lowest class of people. They put slaves on crosses to teach them not to run away. And that's how Jesus, the God of the universe, chose to die for you. So there's no, there's no paradigm in the Christian teaching now for us to say, oh, no, I will do work as long as it's matching my social status or class. How dare we ever think that way? That is not the heart of our God. And if that's in our heart, man, we need to be praying for God to break it because it is not of God. And yet what it also simultaneously does is this beautiful thing of, look, some of you feel like you have constantly been on the lowest rung of the ladder. And while I'm using these stories, and I'm trying to be very cautious, I don't want to demean at all, maybe you do clean out bedpans. Or maybe you are cleaning the office of the CEO, and you think that you're just another number or just another notch, and they can just get rid of you because you feel indispensable, and culture has told you to say that. But that is not the message of Jesus Christ to you and those like you. He has elevated the low, the lowly. And so guess why you and I are here right now? It is not just because the wealthy, powerful people heard this message of Jesus. They were the ones killing the slaves and tried to stop them from learning about Jesus. It was actually that those lower people who were doing the most disgusting things that we don't want to do anymore. We want to outsource all that stuff. But yet they did it with a heart that was a worshipful heart to the Lord. And it became holy work. That's why you and I are here. That's what the first few hundred years of Christianity was full of, is just people on the bottom rungs that society had stepped on and stepped over, and then Jesus up the level for everybody. And so I think the, the, the challenge here is, is twofold. That if you are on the bottom, if you worship the pursuit of if I could only be better, if I could only be more successful, I could only be this or that or whatever. The work that you do will still crush you. But even if you feel like you're doing something mean, mean, meaning, meaning, meaningless or menial or small or insignificant, but done for the Lord, it is a tremendous act of worship. So I want to encourage you to check your heart and make sure everything you do is for the Lord. 
even if it's not what you want to do right now. And look, if you want to change your place, if you want to move on or move forward or have new opportunities, trust in the Lord. Show up. Work hard. Be faithful. Be honest. Be okay when things and people that are wicked try to come and they lie about you and they do all these things. Listen, they did all the same to our Savior too. Like you're actually living more like him. And look, I do believe that when you're faithful, God will open up the opportunities and the doors that you need. Be faithful. But look, if you're at the middle or the higher place, check your heart. Make sure that even what you're doing is not just a Christian plated, covered version of I'm good and God has blessed me because look at how successful I am and yet your heart is so far from God because again, what is the Christian message? Better to be sweeping the floor and know Jesus than flying on the jet and not know him. That's where we need to be. That's, that's the kind of work that brings meaning. So my final question is this. What does it look like to be a Christian blank? Whatever you do, what is it you do? What does it look like to be a Christian pharmacist, construction worker, teacher, farmer? Like, look, <laughs> I want my doctors to be Christians. I want them to pray before they come talk to me. But I also want the teachers that teach my children to be Christians. I mean, I don't think that the church needs more people working for the church. I don't think the world needs more people working for the church. I think we just need far more Christians being Christians where they are. Like, that, that's how the world has changed. Like, if you're cleaning houses, pray over that house. They might not know the Lord. You might be the very spiritual breakthrough that God has sent in, and you think you're cleaning dust, but you're breaking down strongholds. Pray over those people. Be available. Love them. Like, that's how we change the world. It isn't because we got to make all the money. Because you know what happens when we make a bunch of money? We forget about the people. We forget about the people, man. What does it look like to be a Christian? Blank. Insert yourself into that. If you guys will stand with me. We're going to close just a quick brief response of song. I hope this has been helpful for you today. I hope it's been challenging for you today. I know it's challenging to me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. King Jesus, I thank you so much that you, you, you who is so high and exalted, the ancient of days, how you chose to come and be lowly to help us as your people to make sure we put ourselves in you first. Our identity in you is all that we need, all that we're made for. So help out of that identity us to have the kind of work that not just brings life and thriving to our own life, but, but to those around us, Lord. Maybe we feel like we are not called to what we're doing in this season, but help us to be faithful anyway until you open the right doors. Help us to love the people that we're with, never thinking that we're better than, smarter than, more important than, but always a servant to those around us. I pray for those in the room that are bosses, managers, and leaders, that you give them patience and, and understanding, Lord, and, and that they can speak life into those below them and those of us that maybe have to answer to somebody all day, Lord, give us patience and understanding and hope that, Lord, we can lead up, we can influence up for your kingdom, but at the end of the day, Lord, our identity is in you. The entrance exam into your kingdom is not what did we do, 
But who did we trust in? And we declare we trust in you, King Jesus. Amen.